Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm going to continue in the Reaching Out series, and I'm excited about this because after I preach this message, for the next five Sundays I'm going to be turning over the pulpit to Pastor Matt because it makes a lot of sense that our outreach pastor ought to be preaching the majority of the messages in the Reaching Out series. Doesn't that make sense to you? I think he's handled his responsibility at the pulpit very capably. And we've talked through this next series, and I'm very excited about what we're going to be taught. And I think it's going to help us lay a very good theological foundation for the whole ministry of outreach that our church does. As we get more and more involved in doing, we have to understand why it is we're doing all of these things. And this great God who puts that heart in us to be generous to the world around us. So for the next five Sundays, you'll be hearing from Pastor Matt, and I think that's awesome. Really awesome for me, too, because I get a break. I don't want you to think I'm just being completely noble about this. I'm also happy to be able to focus on my studies. Uh, the passage I want to preach from this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And I want to read it, and then I'm just going to launch right into the message here. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, do you ever make a great discovery in life? I'm not talking about a new continent or something like that, but do you ever like find, I don't know, uh, an indie band that no one had heard of, but they're going to be the next rising star, and you discovered them first, and you're so excited to, to hand out MP3s. You're, you're like their distributor at some point, right? Have, have you ever had that experience, or you found this burrito place that you cried the first time you ate their burritos, and then the price was like a dollar fifty, and you couldn't believe your eyes? You know, have you ever discovered a product that changed your life literally, and you told everybody about it? For me, it was Mr. Clean's magic eraser. It really is magic. And I told you about this. I bought like a lifetime supply at Costco and handed them out to everyone who visited. It was ridiculous for a while. Everyone who came to our house, I would work in a Mr. Clean magic eraser into the conversation and be like, dude, you got to try this. In fact, take this home and try it. If you like it, buy some for yourself. People thought I had stock in the company or I was on some kind of commission program. But the truth is, when you make an awesome discovery... There is something irrepressible in the human heart that wants to just talk about it. it just, it's, you can't help yourself. I think passion makes advertisers out of all of us, don't you think? And that's the nature of the human heart. So that when I discovered something genuinely great, the very act of telling someone else about it, in my heart, it's like giving a gift away. Because I want you to experience the joy I've experienced. You know, this passage we read this morning... It's actually something like the last will and testament of the Apostle Peter. As he opens his second epistle, this letter that he's writing to the scattered church, it's a letter that was meant to be distributed by hand and read aloud in numbers of congregations throughout the region. And he says just a couple verses back before the one we read this morning that he knew through the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ that his life would come to an end soon. 
And tradition tells us that Peter paid the ultimate price, was crucified upside down because he was being persecuted for his faith. And Jesus, through his spirit, told Peter before his death, it's going to end any day now, make preparations to come home. And so Peter begins to write down in the second letter his last will and testament for all intents and purposes. You know, the truth is, Peter didn't have very much silver and gold to leave behind. In fact, I think he had just about zero physical earthly property to leave behind as a legacy. But as he's getting older and his eyes are dimming and he knows his time is almost up, something in his heart prompts him to write down, commit to writing, the most valuable treasure he has to leave behind. And so he begins to write down his passionate outline of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. There was a time when Peter, at a younger age, met a a man who was handicapped outside the temple, and he said to him, Listen, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In more modern language, he says, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I do have, Because it's way better than money. And here at the close of his life, Peter's doing the very thing. And you know, I'm only 40. I hope death is many decades away from me. I really hope. But the truth is, as I hit this midlife point, I kind of identify with the heart of Peter. You know, I'm not thinking about the money I'm going to leave behind because it's not going to be very significant. And even if I leave it, I don't feel like that's the greatest thing I have to give to the generations that come after me. Neither to my direct descendants, nor the generations I haven't met who might be influenced by the body of work that God did through me when I was alive. What I feel is I want to commit to writing whatever it is that I learned along the way, because I think the treasures of our lives are the stories and truths which God deposits. The way of looking at the world that makes sense of this confusing chaos all around us, and that says you can actually know God. This is, in fact, our greatest treasure, and it is what Peter commits to writing as he closes out his life. And he says to them, my greatest treasure, which I can leave behind, is this testimony that Jesus Christ was real. He lived, he died, he rose again, he reigns on high, and everything which he has ever said to us is all true. And I'm fully convinced of this, first because the Bible has made sense of it all, but second, and perhaps even more importantly for Peter, because he was an eyewitness. Because he was there. This is not some cleverly devised story where in the upper room after they've had their last supper and they were full and belching, they said, listen, we got to come up with a story that is airtight. You, John, you, James, you come up with a backstory. You guys come up with this and that and some crazy story about how he's going to die. We have to figure out a way to empty that tomb. It wasn't some conspiracy. The gospel, as Peter believed it and staked his life on it, was something that was true and had actually happened. And he knew it because he saw it with his very eyes. His bottom line message is, this has been a worthy life. I have given everything to Jesus. Even after he rose again and ascended into heaven and was no more on the earth, I gave every last moment of my life to this Jesus. And sitting here now, at a moment when a person would have the clarity of impending death, I have no regrets. I realized that my life was actually well-lived and worthwhile because, and here's the bottom line message, it's all true. Every last word of it was all true. Do you have that kind of certainty? As you're facing your own death in maybe a few weeks or years or something, 
Will you look back into your life and have that certainty that you gave it, this precious thing called life, that you gave it to something worthwhile? See, some people give their whole lives to beating out somebody else in business or some such thing. I won! And it's kind of like, I was just talking to somebody about this, my brother, actually, I was talking to my brother about this. He's back from Africa. And we're talking about the glory days of video games when we actually got placed uh, on, on leaderboards and things like that. And he said, you know, there was a moment where he became one of the top-ranked players in this game globally. He got invitations to the top-notch clans and all this stuff. And the, the, when he finally had this amazing game of his life, you, know, you just jump up and you scream, yes! And you realize at that moment what depths of nerdiness you've sunk to. Because if you think about it, you are like rejoicing over something that in the grand perspective of life, what on earth have you really accomplished? And for some people, I think their final days of life will be something like that moment of saying, look, I won, I got the big boat and the house and everything, I got everything. And then you look back and go, I'm not sure exactly what I poured this whole thing into. I'm not so sure anymore if it was such a well-lived life. And it doesn't reduce to just the one who dies richest has the most regrets. It's some people give their lives to all kinds of crazy things. Peter had no doubt. And the reason for his certainty was not just really good Bible study, but he had lived the gospel during his life. He was a first-hand eyewitness to the things of Christ. And God was to him more than a concept and more than a story. He was someone who was in Peter's life every single day. You know, I think there are some problems today with evangelism as I was trained up in it. And that's not for me to be an armchair critic. I think many more people using these methodologies have led many more people to Christ than I have. But there's always been something less than satisfying for me about the way I was trained in evangelism. I was brought up on things like the four spiritual laws tract. Any of you guys ever have those? You know, Four spiritual laws, a little yellow rectangular thing you hand it out at the beach or the mall and you tell people about God has a plan for your life and, and so on and so forth. I was also raised on things like the bridge illustration and that's actually a very powerful illustration. It teaches a concept. I also was certified in evangelism explosion, which I really love because it's nothing but a gigantic collection of analogies and I love analogies. So I was just like, Ugh, I was thriving in EE and I got certified, I got good at it. But as I was doing a lot of these things in actual practice, talking to people door to door, what I found was something was not, I, I'm, try, I'm just trying to be real honest with you, I'm sorry if you've been really blessed by these or even came to Christ through these things, but something felt incomplete to me. Not wrong, but incomplete. It, to give you a better picture of it, I started feeling a little bit like a telemarketer. Do you know telemarketers, they say, hello, may I speak to David Lee? Hello, Mr. Lee, uh, how would you like to receive a gift card for $50 today? I'd like to just send that to you. I'm like, oh, something's coming. And, you know, these people are walking through the scripted thing. Even their cheeriness is on the paper. At this point, pause, smile, laugh, something. And, and it just felt to me a little bit like as I was walking through these things, I was talking about a concept, but I wasn't talking about something in me. I was talking about something outside of me. I think that was what troubled me so much about the way I was trained to do evangelism, is I felt like I was being trained to sell something rather than to tell something. Now, I don't know if you ever watched an infomercial and you were really interested until you found out it was not really a show, it was an infomercial. I saw this thing on YouTube called The Recruit. 
and uh, day five or something like that. It's, it, looked, it was like for people who are having a Jones for 24 and the new season's not coming, you're supposed to watch this thing. And it was like this little, little thing. You know, they have this whole 24 CTU kind of headquarters place and a guy out in the field. And I was watching 10 minutes of this and I realized it's this big commercial for degree deodorant. I was on my DVR trying to program. I was like, why isn't it coming up? Is this show on? And it was an infomercial for degree deodorant. I was so mad. First, because I was embarrassed, because I'd already told other people to check this out. And second, because, man, that really stinks. I wanted to see this show, and it was just a commercial. What that teaches me is, everyone likes to be told, nobody likes to be sold. You know what I'm talking about? You know that smarmy, kind of greasy feeling you get when someone's just fast-talking you, trying to convince you of something, and you feel like what they're sharing with you is a sales pitch, It's not really something genuine, something upon which they staked their own lives. I believe this emphasis that Peter places on being an eyewitness is meant to communicate to us that the real power in evangelism, as far as it comes through us, is not simply the perfectly articulated argument, but it is the conviction that comes from having lived this, having staked our whole earthly lives on this. How many times have I told you about that poor guy, the salesman who's now immemorialized from my pulpit, who tried to sell me a Honda, but he was driving a Toyota. I was like, ah, ah, wrong answer. I'm not buying a car from you. You don't even believe enough in it to buy one yourself. Why would I buy one from you? Do you realize that that's the heart of evangelism? Is that it is best communicated by people who are not just top salesmen. They are true believers. And I think this is what is so effective. The world around us is hungry for truth, just like we are. You don't want to hear me preach if you feel like I'm just the perfectly groomed hair and the televangelist talking head who doesn't believe this stuff. If you visit my home and get to know me, I hope you'll discover there's at least some truth and genuineness to what I'm saying. This is what we're all looking for, is are the people talking to us the real deal? Are the politicians who make these speeches, I've heard of it called hope-gnosis, you know, hope-gnosis. It's like these wonderful messages of the, the future will be wonderful. Vote for me and everything will be great. Are you kidding me or are you for real? Do you believe this stuff or are you just trying to get a new job? Well, it's the same thing. People will ask you and me, why are you so anxious to see me believe in Christ? And what will our answer be, not simply verbally, but from our hearts? Why does that even matter to us, that the people we love and care about share a relationship with Jesus? Well, you don't get a commission in heaven for getting more people signed up, okay? That's not the way it works. That's silliness. The reason we share it is because we have found something that has made sense of the world, that has touched our hearts, that has filled that deep emptiness which all of us felt. And still feel from time to time. That feeling of being utterly alone in the universe. Of feeling like nothing has meaning. Nothing has taste anymore. And I want to know that I'm alive and I'm part of something that actually matters. And that is what Jesus has provided for so many of us. If that isn't the case, it's no wonder then that truly only one out of every four Christians in the United States ever share their faith. In a single year. You know, when Peter was testifying, he says, you know where my greatest moment of convincing came from? The 
turning point for me. It came one day when Jesus took me, James, and John up to the top of this mountain. We're like, what? What do we? How come these other guys aren't coming with us? But I guess it was Jesus' custom to pull aside his three closest guys, his inner posse. And he said, guys, let's go again. And they're thinking in their minds, here we go, another one of our private lessons where he's going to yell at us more than the other guys. So they follow him, and they're hiking up to this mountain. They're winded. They get to the top, and Jesus goes, all right, today it's a different kind of lesson Put on your shades. So they put on their Oakleys, and they're waiting. And here, here it comes. Jesus goes, you, watch this. And it's, I don't know exactly what he did. If he took off a cloak or something, but his face shines like the sun. And his clothing became as bright as the light. And what, what God was doing at that moment on that mountain was he was showing them, you think this guy, this Jesus you hang out with, is some really good man who can put together an awesome public talk. You know, he's, he's a great public speaker, a decent friend. He can sure feed a lot of people. He's a good magician. I don't know how he does it. But that day on the mountain, what they saw was Jesus as God. Jesus said, you think you see everything of me in this little shell. Let me show you who you've been hanging out with for a couple of years. And he just, you know, just pictured, like Michael Jackson, that wind blowing and just, light streaming, and he's blown away, and Peter, I mean, think about it. If you thought I was just an average guy, I took you up to a mountain, and I was like, wow, and I was shining like the sun, wouldn't you think of me a little differently for the rest of your life? Wouldn't you be like, that Pastor Dave, I mean, don't fall asleep in his sermons, he'll zap you. This is their best friend. This is their teacher, and for the rest of their lives, they would never be able to see him differently. It's this moment that this aged, soon-to-die Peter recalls as the pivotal moment in his life when he became more certain than ever that this gospel was true and everything Jesus would ever say after that was true. Because you cannot unsee what your eyes have seen. And I'm sure that when weariness and doubt set in over and over through the course of his life, when he was languishing in prison cells, and when he was getting stones thrown at him, or people were kicking him out of their homes from dinner parties, I'm sure at those moments that he went back to this precious memory on the mountaintop again and again to remember, hang on, press on, because it's all true no matter what it feels like today. That day you saw something you can never forget or unknow. This Jesus is who he said he was. And though the ebb and flow of my life is that sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down, this Jesus will never be other than the one I saw on that mountain. He is for real. And he is why I keep hanging on. I want to ask you something. What keeps you coming to harvest week after week? Maybe your daddy and mommy trained you to be a churchgoer. I know that's the case for me. I feel so weird. Never mind my personal relationship with Christ. If I don't go to church on Sunday, I feel like my head's going to explode. Some of that is genuine devotion to Christ. Part of it is just training for a lifetime. Church is what we do. But I want to ask you something. You're an adult now. You have absolute freedom over your schedule. What keeps you coming out? And never mind church, what keeps you identifying yourself as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, day after day? Now, it could be possible that today, hearing this question, you're not doing so great spiritually. You're you're hanging in there, but Jesus is hardly the centerpiece of your life. When I preach these all-or-nothing swinging for the fences sermons, you feel a little uncomfortable. You go home and you watch a game and you let it all leak out of you because it's like too much pressure. I get that. I've, I've felt that actually on some days myself. 
But the reason we keep hanging on, I believe this all my heart, the reason most of us are hanging on is because we all have a mountaintop experience of our own. Whatever we are like today, there was a period in our lives where Jesus made a huge difference in our lives and he showed himself in such a a real way for the rest of our lives we would be ruined for anything else. We knew that day, that moment, that he is real and whatever else we will go through in life, this Jesus will always be someone we simply cannot abandon. You can get pretty far from God, but you can never cut that cord, can you? You can never just go, I'm going to go the total other way, be a complete pagan, because you know that Jesus is for real. You knew it beyond any shadow of doubt at some point in your life, and it is that turning point, your own personal moment of seeing the transfiguration of Christ, where he became someone more than a story. That moment is precious to us. It is the place where our testimony sits firmly anchored. It is that place that carries us through the long periods in our lives where we feel far from God, where we feel drifting like a boat, a cork, just floating on the water, and you feel like, am I going to find my way back? Those are the moments that anchor us and say, do not ever presume that you have believed the lie. It is all real, and you know it in your own heart. You cannot unsee what your eyes have seen. I believe this is what makes our testimonies so potent is when they're anchored not just in a clever story, but in our story. In a genuine experience of having known Jesus Christ and saying, today, he is still making a difference in my life. You know, I want to shift gears a little bit here because the key word that we're picking up on is the word eyewitness. That's what we're talking about. Eyewitness means you have seen him with your own eyes. And that is the primary calling of a witness. I want to move more into a classroom mode now, so if you're kind of losing me, if you respond better in a classroom setting, let's switch a little bit into note-taking mode, because I want to close out this message with a few practical insights on what it really means to be a witness. How many of you guys love a good courtroom drama? Raise your hand. I mean, from Jagged Edge to whatever, 12 Angry Men. I love courtroom dramas. I think, honestly, if I could do anything else for a living right now, I'd seriously consider law. I just think the law is fascinating. And I love the tension because somebody's whole future is hanging in the balance and people are presenting evidence and there's, oh, ooh, there's twists and turns. And and I love that. I love the making of a good case. And I think it is in that context that the word witness is most familiar to us, right? Everyone look at Peter Lee for a second. I couldn't believe. Stand up for a second, Peter. I'm about to preach on the word witness and he's wearing, look at that shirt. That's my visual aid right there. Thank you, Peter. You're 15 minutes right there, brother. What does it mean to be a witness? And let's think about it in the context of a courtroom. What is the calling of a witness on the stand? And I want to give you some insights because as you apply these things from a law, a courtroom, into Christian life and evangelism, you'll be amazed what clarity and freedom it will bring to you in the otherwise heavy subject of sharing our faith. First thing is that a witness must have firsthand experience. Right? A witness has to have first-hand experience. What qualifies you to be an eyewitness? Any of you in law enforcement, are you looking for the smartest guy at the scene? You, go, you look like you have good English. Can you be a witness? You don't care about that. Being a witness to something is not something you prepare for or train for. It is simply because you were there. I may not have good English, but I saw him shoot him. I was right there. I, that's my qualification and nothing more. I happened to be there. I experienced it. I guess that makes me a witness. 
and it makes me a credible one, doesn't it? Because I saw it with my own eyes. Now, in a courtroom, there's two kinds of witnesses, aren't there? You have your expert witness and you have your eyewitness. The expert witness is a guy with a, a tweed jacket and elbow patches. He comes in with a pipe. He's the guy who's done this for a living. In fact, you can actually be so good at being an expert witness that you can make a healthy living just testifying in court about one subject for the rest of your life. I don't think too many people like these guys, but, you know, it's, it's a living, okay? And they go in every time and they just give generic expertise on the type of case which is being argued. They have no first-hand experience, really. They weren't there. They don't know the people involved. They just know a lot about ballistics and flooding and naval architecture and things like that. I mean, they know something about something, and that's why they get called in. And then you have your eyewitnesses. They have zero expertise. They don't know how to load a gun. They just go, I saw him go like this, and he, there's a loud noise. That guy fell down. That's all I got. It's, I don't know about ballistics, curving of bullets. All I know is I saw what I saw, and I'm telling you. Now, here's the thing. Which type of witness do you think the majority of us are meant to be? An expert witness or an eyewitness? I think the reason so few Christians share their faith is because we've got it in our heads. We're all supposed to be expert witnesses. That people are going to ask us all these tough questions we don't know the answers to. We're going to look like dummies with our pants around our ankles like, Oh, I don't know, sorry. I embarrass Jesus and myself. And so we don't want to open our, that can of worms because we don't know where that's going. The truth is most of us have no clue about half the answers to these huge questions. Isn't that right? There are a few people in this world who are called to be expert witnesses. And they are doing their job faithfully. I'm doing it right now. I hope that I'm something of an expert on a few things because I am not an expert on anything else. This is the only thing I know how to do. And I'm trying to do it faithfully week after week. Spell out the truth of the Bible and address as many questions as I can. I don't think that's every calling for every one of you. I think the thing you're called to do is say what you're qualified to say. Speak of the God we're speaking of from the perspective of one who has known him. Don't overreach. Don't say more than you're qualified to say. Tell people what you actually know about God. Because that's all, ultimately, anyone will be interested in hearing from us anyway. Do you realize as soon as a witness, an eyewitness, starts leading the jury or trying to argue the case, the judge smacks him down real fast and says, Hey, just answer the question. We don't care about your opinion. We don't care if you think the guy has shifty eyes. Just look at him, Your Honor. He's, he's guilty. He looks guilty. Do you think that's going to hold up in court? Even the court reporter is going to be asked to strike that last statement because the, the, the witness's job is not to win the case. It is simply to tell the truth. It's the only thing a witness has to do. Stand up and say what you know and nothing more, nothing less. There's somebody else who is arguing the case to win or lose it. Isn't it interesting that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit our counselor? Jesus called the Holy Spirit our counselor. It's the exact same word we use to refer to an attorney. After heard in all the, the, the legal dramas, counselor, approach the bench. I was a counselor. These guys run to day camp. I, I realized that counselor means lawyer, attorney, one who advocates for someone else. It is the attorney's job to argue the case. It is the witness's job simply to speak the truth. And that clear distinction has to be there. You know, you may love this person you're reaching out to, but it is not your burden to decide whether they will accept Christ or not. This is an open marketplace of ideas. And there is a God out there who loves that person far more than you ever will. And he has a vested interest in what becomes of that person's decision. 
You can speak the truth, but you don't have to be anxious about what their final decision is because that's not your burden to bear. That's God's. And that is terribly freeing for us that we're just sharing the greatest gift I know to give, which is my relationship with Christ. And it's up to God to decide whether this person will hear and see the truth in that or not. We will never be like some of the other traditions, including Christianity in the age, in the years of old, that would kill you for unbelief. You say, you want to believe this or would you rather die? I mean, that's not the bargain we're putting out there. Everyone would just saying, look, this is the truth. I really hope that God will lead you to understand that. Here's another thing about witnesses. They must tell the truth. Duh, right? You know, when you, when you take the witness stand, whether you're, you're a Muslim or a Christian or Buddhist, Buddhist or Hindu, what they ask you to do is put your hand on a Bible, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Put your hand on the Bible. I think, I don't know, is it true there's an option now? You don't have to put your hand on the Bible? I mean, I'm looking at some lawyers. Somebody nod, yes, no. You put your hand on the Bible, and what do you say? I swear to what? Tell the truth. I think this is an, an ingenious oath. Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What that's saying is don't lie, don't leave anything out, and don't add anything Do you get that? That's a very comprehensive oath. That is the entire job of a witness. Don't lie, don't leave anything out, and don't add anything that doesn't belong there. When you don't do that as a a witness, what do they call it? Perjury. Perjury carries a very serious penalty. Why? Because the entire foundation of the legal system is the believability of a witness. When you got other people's future well-being at stake and you lie under oath, you undermine the entire justice system, don't you? Because if you can lie under oath, there's no one who can be trusted. There's no safety for any of the citizens. And so perjury, by, by, ne- by necessity, carries a very stiff penalty. I think Christians very frequently fall into a form of spiritual perjury. I think in our zeal to be a good witness, we embellish the story and fall into a trap on either side of a very steep precipice. Okay, One of the common forms of Christian perjury is, and I'll give you the two faces of it, it's overstating the good stuff and understating the bad stuff. I think these are very common forms of Christian perjury. Have you ever heard a Christian talk about Christianity like, Listen here, sweetie. As soon as you believe in Jesus, your acne is going to clear up. Your hair is going to grow back. You're going to find a beautiful spouse. Your kids will be all Harvard graduates. And you're going to retire by the Chesapeake Bay in an oceanside mansion or a seaside mansion. And you're going to have everything. The Lexus will come. The promotion will come. And we talk about it. And guess what? The best part is you'll never be sad again. You always feel this oozing sense of purpose in your life. You wake up every morning, electricity coming out of your fingertips like, Jesus, what are we going to do today to conquer the world in your name? You're going to feel like that all the time. You're going to sit down with coffee in the morning and open the Bible and angels will fly out like butterfly wings. And Do you ever feel like that's what people talk about? You'll never be broke. You'll never be sick. Your wife will always treat you decent. You'll have a six-pack ab. I hear some of this stuff and it's like, man, we need to just shut up. Christianity does radically change our lives, but not always in the ways that we promise people. The truth is the gospel is potent, powerful stuff. It's the truth, the only truth, and nothing but the truth. But you know what? It doesn't mean that overnight everything in your life will just be made clean and sanitized and perfect. 
There are bad days ahead. And that's the other side of it too, is understating the bad stuff. Pretending that suffering, doubt, persecution, rejection will never be a part of what we feel. I feel doubt on a regular basis. One of the occupational hazards of being so sure about everything is in private you go, I'm not so sure. And I've got to wrestle with that on a regular basis. I'm just being honest with you. There are times when I'm going to preach a sermon and I look at the text I've got for that week and I go, I feel nothing, deadness here. I don't want to talk about this junk. It's like, I'm about to fall asleep on my own sermon. I haven't preached it yet. I wish every day was filled with the presence of God in this rapturous way, but it isn't. There's a lot of bad days. I think the problem with so much Christian witness is we tie it to our human experience and say, if you become a Christian, here's what will happen to you. That's not the real message, though, guys. The real message, the powerful message, is that a lot of bad stuff, a lot of good stuff is going to happen to you until the day you die. Here's the real message. It is what we come to see of the glory of God through it all. That's the message of the gospel. Through all my ups and all my downs, nonetheless, if I look hard enough, I will see God's love and glory every single time. And that's the good news of the gospel. We need to anchor our message of the gospel not in the ups and downs of my own personal experience, but in the unchanging truth of who God has revealed himself to be through every up and every down in my life. We talk too much about my story only without realizing my story is only valuable as it springboards into the glory of the unchanging Christ. Every time I've suffered, God has shown faithfulness, even when I don't acknowledge it. Every time I've worried, God has provided shelter to take away my fear, even when I haven't run into it. And if we are careful to see it, we will see God, His comforting presence in everything in life, so that we don't have to tie the gospel to the ups and downs of our little lives but to the great unchanging up of the life of Christ. Let me give you a last thing here. A witness must not remain silent. How many of you have ever been hit with a subpoena and you had to show up in court? Or you at least had a re- any, any of you subpoena to be a witness? Not jury duty, to be a witness. Okay. So when you get one, you're really supposed to show up. It's a good idea to be there when they tell you. If not, you may be found in contempt of court. You may completely complicate the entire criminal justice system, if you were the the witness to a crime and you're not there to say something about it. But I think beyond the legal duty or civic duty, we have a moral obligation. If we are called upon to be a witness and something, something important hangs in the balance, we have a moral duty to speak up. I, I think sometimes it's tempting for a witness to be quiet. If there was a thug in your neighborhood who was shaking down every store owner and your store was one of them that got hit, and he said to you, the cops got me, but if you say anything in court, you're dead when I get out. I'm going to come and mess you up bad. Now, how many of us would have the courage to testify in court? My knees are shaking just thinking about it. I'd be like one of those guys that would find some loophole because that stuff scares me. I don't know if I could face a thug. I, I'm not a tough guy, all right? I'm a lover, not a fighter. How many of you would be willing to speak up even if it meant great harm or loss to yourself? I believe when there's something of significant importance hanging in the balance, we are morally obligated to speak up. It's no accident that the the Greek word that comes to us in the Bible for witness is the word martyr or martyrus, from which we get the same English word martyr. Right? What's a martyr? It's somebody who dies for a cause because they so thoroughly believe in it 
they would rather face death than to give up that belief. It's no accident that those two words are so closely related linguistically. There was a time when Christians received such harsh persecution that people would literally put a sword to the neck and say, renounce Christ or I will drive the sword through you and your life is over. That's an impossibly difficult decision for a lot of people to face. Can I tell you, at least for the first five times, I probably would have chickened out. Okay, Lord, on the sixth one, please let me just die. But I... That's an impossible situation. I like to think I could handle it, but I probably couldn't. So many faithful witnesses said, this is not about what I gain. This is about the glory of Christ who has never let me down. And they stood their ground and were, in in many cases, stabbed, boiled, burned. In North Korea, they were run over in rows by steamrollers. I want you to think about that. To just be laid in a row and have a steamroller just roll over you and you hear the person before you just burst open. And, and could you handle that? Is there anything you believe in so profoundly that you could face that rather than give up this earnest belief? I believe that there were so many who were so utterly convinced of the glory and worthiness of Christ and what he'd done for them that they faithfully withstood that test to the point of death. And that's why the word witness and the word martyr came to be synonymous. Because so many died for this deep conviction. Somebody once asked, very insightfully, if Christianity were illegal in the United States of America today, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a very interesting and very old question. You probably heard it before, but it bears repeating. If it was illegal to be a Christian Would there be enough evidence gathered in your life to put you away? I think perhaps one problem with evangelism today is that we're able to remain silent because nobody's asking us to say anything. Have you realized that so much evangelism training is about how we can get the word out? It's like finding creative ways to probe and poke into someone's life because by and large, most people today in America aren't asking the church. What gives with you guys? What is this gospel? Now, there are still people asking, and there's still this deep, burning hole in their hearts. But they're not always turning to Christians to find the answers. Because Christians, I think, we have sometimes disappointed ourselves and the world with the way that we've conducted our witness. Listen to what one Christian ethicist wrote in this essay. It's one of the most powerful quotes I could ever read for you. Philip Kennison, no relation to Sam Kennison, but... uh, he, he wrote in this book on Christian ethics in a postmodern world. Here's what the church needs to wake up to today. Listen carefully to this excerpt, okay? One of the favorite passages of contemporary Christian apologists is 1 Peter 3.15, which urges that Christians always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. To their credit, evangelicals, perhaps more than anyone, are poised to give answers. The problem is that no one is asking. Unless we are content to answer questions no one is posing, it seems that the most urgent apologetic task of the church today, listen, is to live in the world in such a way that the world is driven to ask us about the hope that we have. Until that happens... All the theories in the world about apologetics are in vain, and the truth we say we bear witness to will be heard as falsehood. 
The truth is that 75% of us, statistically across America, remain utterly silent about Jesus all year long, comfortably so. I think part of the reason that happens is because our lives don't draw any kind of interest in those who have found in their own hearts this gigantic hole, a vacuum. And they're trying to make sense of why my life feels empty, why nothing I've touched satisfies. But when your life is filled with genuine presence of Jesus Christ, it will show forth in more than your cleverly devised arguments. You will ooze Christ and people will begin to take note and you will not be permitted to remain silent because so many will be asking you to give an answer for the hole that is in their own heart because it has evidently been filled in yours. This is not a guilt trip at all. It's a way of calling us out of our slumber to say that the the real task of evangelism is not to come up with the, the, the perfect bulletproof argument but to be so embracing of a life with Jesus Christ that to give witness is simply to tell the truth about the life that we're living today. And if we can do that, there will be people out there in our lives who will ask because they also have the same hole in their heart. It is one of the greatest joys in the Christian's life to share the experience of a spiritual awakening with somebody whose own heart is heavy with lostness, confusion, emptiness, and to see them find genuinely on their own the answers that lie in Jesus Christ. It is why I do what I do for a living, and I know it's why you continue to come here week after week and walk with Jesus. I want to ask you not to be so heavy-hearted about evangelism. Last time I preached about evangelism, I was tempted to ask everyone to raise their hand. How many of you have shared your faith with someone in the last year? That's just cruel. I'm not going to do that. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling guilty about anything. I want you to know that evangelism and the sharing of Jesus Christ is not as heavy a burden as it feels like. It is simply the telling the truth about the life you live with him each and every day. That's powerful stuff. That's ultimately what reaching out is about. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. You know, if we take the time to listen, what we'll discover is that there are a lot of people surrounding our lives whose hearts are genuinely yearning for something. It's not that they're unintelligent or immoral or any of those things. They're people just like you and me. I mean, we're all just people. Stuck to this big ball by gravity, spinning around day after day until one day we die, and we're trying to make sense of all of it. Trying to find something that makes us feel truly alive and not just like we're marking time. And that big hole in our hearts will never be filled by anything on this earth. And if you're one of the people in this church who have made a lot of money or had a lot of lovers or been successful and famous and powerful, you know that every thrill on this earth eventually fades. None of it has been big enough to fill that hole, has it? That's what so many people around us are experiencing. And it is our joy and our privilege 
to share with them this real person, Jesus Christ, who loves us more than we will ever understand and who has forgiven us more than we will ever deserve. As a witness, you don't have to tell the most clever story or have every answer to every question. All you need to do is stand up and tell the truth about who Jesus is in your life. And every one of us can do that. Let's now pray that God will help us to, in fact, do just that. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.